2: The Hello, and welcome to Move, a podcast which is hosted by me, Jamie Lang, and my business partner, Ed Williams. Now, in 2012, Ed and I founded our confectionery business, Candy Kittens, a business which I'd actually dreamed of having ever since I was six years old. And honestly, we wouldn't have achieved half of what we've been able to without all the amazing tips and advice we picked up along the way. Move stands for Motivation, Opportunity, Vision, Entrepreneurship. And each episode of the podcast, we're bringing you the stories of founders, innovative thinkers, entrepreneurs and winners who show us all what's possible with hard work and focus so whatever you're moving towards we hope today's guests will open your eyes to what you can achieve this is move Today's guest launched Suitcase magazine while at university in New York City at 22 years old. Uh, She wanted to launch it to fill a gap for how people are travelling today, looking for experiences, and find a deeper way to connect to places. Now, she has won various accolades during her time at Suitcase, including 25 Under 25 Most Influential Londoners for the Evening Standard, 30 Under 30 by Forbes, Women of the Future Awards, Stevie Awards, and last year Great British Entrepreneur of the Year Award. Now, a couple of years Ago, she co-founded #CookForSyria, an aid for UNICEF that used food to connect people to the Syrian crisis and raise funds for children in the area. She has launched two best-selling cookbooks and raised over 750,000 for UNICEF to date. Wow. Say that again, buddy. Wow. One more time. (laughs) Wow. That's it, right? When you hear something like that, when you have an intro like that to our next guest, you really sit back and think, what have I actually done? What have we been doing? We've been wasting a lot of time. She's been pretty
3: busy. We've known her now for what? Seven years, I think. Mm -hmm. Um, We met her probably
2: first at our first ever pop-up shop, which is a little bit of a throwback. It is a throwback. Um, She's an incredible lady, incredible guest. Um, Very excited for this one. Here she is, Serena again. founder of Suitcase Magazine. Sweena, how are you?
1: Oh, I'm good. It's been a while. I it's think been a while. We uh, launched our businesses around the same time.
3: Yeah, we were saying this earlier. So it was like, what's that, 2012?
1: 2012, yeah. I remember I came, I Think. did you come to my launch? Yeah, I, yeah,
3: definitely I think we came did. To, I came in, to your launch. Uh, Covent Garden?
1: Uh, no, our launch was in Shoreditch.
3: Shortage House. Uh, oh, right, okay, oh, that's, okay, that's okay. way cooler. Yeah. You had a,
1: you had <laughs> pop- yeah, we had a had a pop up in yeah we had a pop up in Covent Garden. So we when uh, I launched the first magazine in twenty twelve in the summer of twenty twelve, and then um, decided we need to do something to get the word out there more, and it was a london olympics so we decided to do a pop-up shop in common garden and seven dials yeah, I so remember that's the one you it. Yeah.
2: came that's to it. yeah do you know what's so interesting about that <clears throat> we we all started our business around the same time we were around 22 years old i think that's what we were yeah um but with y- you i kind of was quite lucky because i launched uh, a business with uh ed who kind of was the complete different sort of person to what I was you know I was slightly all over the place and slightly oh my god let's put something on the moon and open it and Ed was like no no let's bring it down to earth a little bit how did you find because you were you were by yourself
1: um I actually originally had a co-founder um sure. who's was very creative and then I was more the business editorial brains uh and then after our launch, we actually ended up having so many people um, get excited about the idea and, and offer to help. That it was just incredible because the first year was just a lot of me Googling like how to start a magazine. <laughs> I, I really didn't know what I was doing. And I think one of the most amazing things that I did was um, I one night at like midnight, I decided I was going to email Anna Harvey, who was the VP of Condé Nast at the time. And I just sent her an email saying, you know, I'm going to launch this travel magazine. What do you think? And like, um, please, can you help me with these three things? One was advertising, and I can't remember what else. And then she ended up emailing me back saying, like, I love this idea. didn't Let me help you. Um, you can use me as a reference for anything, which is obviously golden ticket. Yeah, yeah, yeah,
2: incredible. But, but, but so if I take a step back from that, how mm-hmm. did you just go and email her out of the blue? Like, how did? It, so you just basically found the email address and was like, here we go.
1: Yeah, I, f- I found her email address and then just cold emailed her. So it must have been a pretty good email. <laughs> yeah, but, but
2: wait—that's what you what do you what are you, you writing an email like that? <laughs> Did you have blackmail or something? No, yeah, 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 It's hey got these photos of you. <laughs> 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 but that's no, no. what's so incredible that um, that that it, this is what this is what it takes to be someone who to start saying It's about taking those risks mm. and about not really caring about the rejection. And I think that's what a lot of people fear a lot of the time is when uh, they want to start something, want to do something, uh, they fear the rejection, but you didn't fear that.
1: No, I didn't fear rejection. I suppose I was just quite naive and I was so excited about the idea. It didn't occur to me that it was a bad one. Um, and I guess if you do have a good idea, then it's amazing to see how people will rally around it. And I've seen that with my friends' businesses as well. Uh, and another thing that I learned actually is not to try and keep everything to yourself. Because in the beginning, the very beginning, I was like, oh, my God, I can't tell anybody about suitcase because they might just try and copy it. But that it takes a lot of effort to try and actually copy a, a whole concept. So I think I as soon as I realized that, I started telling more people and it was amazing how many people actually came to help.
2: And that's what we sort of figured out um, ourselves and from speaking to a lot of different people. Um Ed and I always say, talk about your idea. And a lot of uh, people who have started brands or have businesses now say that further down the line. Say, no, talk to everyone about it. Because to to copy a concept is pretty hard. Because, you know, you you were already going, yes, your idea was unique. Yes, Mm -hmm. it was great. But starting a magazine was not an original idea. That had already happened. And so, but someone to... You know, you can say an idea, but then to fully copy what you're trying to do is very hard, unless you're creating cement yeah. for the first time. You know what I mean? Then you're like, "Oh, actually, yeah. weird analogy." Yeah, I don't know. <laughs> well, I heard that my one of my brother's friends supposedly created some form of cement, and then it was taken as his thesis at Oxford. Right? Don't know if it's true, but he told me it
3: was. <laughs> probably
1: a lot smarter than all of us. Yeah. <laughs> so,
3: talking of Oxford, uh, let's go back to kind of early days for you, Sarina. Where did you? So what was the journey that led to um, Suitcase? Well, Well, it definitely was not Oxford, yeah. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Um,
1: uh, So I I took a year off after school, which I was lucky enough to do, and I think that was an incredible experience because it allowed me to travel, to work, um, to to get a better idea of actually what I wanted to do when I got to university. And then um, when I was at school, I was obsessed with this idea of going to Oxford or Cambridge. Um, For me, it was Oxford because my teachers told me that Basically, if I didn't, I had the potential to go. Then, if I didn't really go there, then you know my career would be second rate. Yeah. So I applied for to Oxford, which, if any of you have ever tried that, it is a lot of extra work and a lot of extra stress. And I didn't get in, and I was just heartbroken. And then um, they actually pushed me to try again, and that took so much extra time. And then I had to put myself through the process again. And when I didn't get in the second time, I was like, oh, my God, something is wrong with me. There's yeah. no hope.
2: But but weirdly enough, if I was going to focus on that point, we talked about the mm. idea of rejection. And um, you you were kind of rejected by Oxford, right? Mm. And that did throw you. And that yeah. did sort of put you in a situation where you are like, actually, no, I don't really like the feeling of being rejected? Because what I assume, right, is that if you were applying for Oxford and things like that, you'd already already, always were achieving what you wanted to achieve, right? You're probably a top student. You're doing very, very yeah. well at school. And then so to be put down, did that make you feel that you were second rate and you weren't going to achieve what you wanted to achieve?
1: Yeah, well, I think also at school, you're taught that you can only have certain kinds of career paths, which are very traditional. I mean, I'm sure no one told you that you could be a TV star. Or I don't know how you describe your. Well, you, I think the reality
2: TV <laughs> was not... We're still trying, we're
3: still <laughs> trying to tell
1: him that
2: he... That he can't do it. Yeah, yeah.
1: Insta-famous. So. <laughs> but
2: it's true. And sorry to cut you off, but what is so interesting, I think <clears throat> what uh, this podcast is about is about people realizing that. Because at school, what happens is that you're, uh, you're kind of uh, pigeonholed down a certain road yeah. and you're told to pass this exam and this exam and this exam. And if you don't, then potentially you won't achieve success, whatever you define success as. Mm. And I think that's a real issue with the educational system. And if you get rejected and things like that, it becomes hard, right? So you must have found it hard.
1: I found it so hard. And it took me a while to recover. And I think um, luckily my father had made me apply to some other universities in America as well. He grew up in America and he knew how great the education system is there because it allows you to be a lot more flexible so you don't have to go in knowing what you want to do and you can take lots of different courses on the side uh, so uh, i ended up applying to nyu and i got in for this degree called liberal studies which is no one in the uk have ever heard of it i hadn't <laughs> heard of it and um, which is basically like literature philosophy history of art um mixture of global culture and then you specialize in something and just uh Being able to explore lots of different subjects and things made me really realize what I wanted to do and it gave me the flexibility.
3: And was it whilst you were at NYU that that's where the kind of suitcase idea came from? Yeah, so
1: the suitcase idea came from um, the fact that I actually had to study abroad to go to NYU. So I went uh, to Paris and I I went to New York as well. And um, when I was living in those cities, it was the first time I really needed to rely on, you know, traditional travel websites without naming any names. And I realized how poorly researched they were, how hard to use they were, and just how ugly they were as well. And so I ended up using a few local blogs and things, but it was just such a nightmare. And I thought, how amazing would it be if I could create one source for travel that was relevant to how younger people are traveling today. So more experience-driven and um, more, uh, just more beautiful. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> to actually use photography. And was it always going to be
3: a magazine? Was that kind of always so the vision? So always,
1: I always wanted to create... A curated platform and at the time when we launched a print magazine a quarterly print magazine made the most sense because it had the most emphasis on curation and i had the most control of how it looked like because even seven years ago websites were so expensive to make there's yeah. no way i could do that achieve the same thing and then now and
2: how much how much back then were you being quoted what kind of things were you looking at for a website oh
1: like a hundred thousand pounds to achieve to achieve what i wanted to, to achieve i mean i'm sure i could have spent like Twenty five thousand, but I still I didn't. But have still, twenty five thousand. I money. that money yeah, to yeah, just yeah, yeah, throw yeah, out course. a website. um whereas a magazine, it was um, I got offered much more flexible payment terms with my printers, um, and then that allowed me to make the money back from sales and then from our first pop up shop. As well. So
3: how quickly from having that initial kind of idea when you are in Paris to then mm-hmm. the first print?
1: Uh, what was the what was the steps in between months. that? Eight months.
3: And what did you have to do? How did you get started?
1: So first was I guess got everything. I don't know. We didn't know in a very logical way because I never studied branding or anything like yeah. that. I suppose first thing was defining who our audience was. So looking at who we were catering to. So we did a survey of our, our potential audience, like about 500 people seeing where they were traveling to, how much they were spending, you know, what things they read and what was missing from the travel sources that existed. And then use that information to um, pull together travel content that made sense for our first issue.
2: Yeah, but what's so interesting is that there are two things here which I find uh, interesting is that, uh, you know, you didn't get into Oxford and you then went to New York and Paris and... Uh, that's why we look at everything happens for a reason mm. in that sort of cheesy saying. If you hadn't have travelled to those places and you hadn't have experienced those situations going on where the websites were bad and things that like, yeah. Suitcase Magazine never might have existed. No way. No way, right? Which is incredible. But also you're 22 years old, you're in a foreign city and as you've quoted, you started Suitcase Magazine at NYU in your bedroom.
1: Yeah.
2: Um, and at 22 years old, I was wearing a pink boiler suit on a beach in Ibiza. I had no <laughs> idea. You said this a couple Times than I know kind of I don't know what images that I don't know what keep <laughs> Why why white pink
1: boiler suit. It yeah. <laughs> no, I just remember
2: this one time I was wearing it. But what gave you? Where did that drive and that passion come from? Why did you? Did you always know that you wanted to do something yourself?
1: No, I think I always knew I always had ideas, but I never actually did any of them. I always thought, oh, it'd be cool to start a travel magazine, but I'm going to do that when I'm older. In my head, I thought 30, which I'm well, next year. I'm 30.
2: <laughs> yeah.
1: So um, and then. The, I I was going down so many different routes. I didn't know what I really wanted to do, maybe thinking about screenwriting, publishing, whatever. And then um, when I actually went to, lived in New York for a bit, I don't know if either of you lived in New York before, but people are so driven. So yeah, they, I mean, yeah, I mean, you just
2: get
3: that from being there for a couple
2: of days,
1: I yeah. think. Well, yeah.
2: But I think in what New York does is it, it sort of, for some reason, it offers opportunity. It really does. Which I think London sometimes lacks. I think that the hustle, I mean...
3: That, I feel like that word was just a New York word, yeah. really. <laughs> Everyone's like hustling. Yeah, Everyone's yeah, yeah. The whole thing I is
1: think, just a hustle. I think, and what was interesting for me was I'd never been introduced to that idea that you could be studying and meanwhile be starting a business. Like some people in my year, you know, had separate career. Maybe they're an actor or they started a fashion brand or just all these different things. And uh, I'd, I'd never come across that before because all my friends in England were just kind of going down one path rather than trialing different things. So I think you could definitely adopt that mentality and have it in somewhere like London, but it was the first time I'd been exposed to it. And so when I was meeting all all these people and then I was becoming friends with them and they all, all had these side hustles that were just so cool, I felt like I need to do something too. Yeah, so yeah, yeah, yeah. it didn't seem like such a big deal to start a magazine.
2: Right. But, but I find it interesting is that I, you know, we, Ed and I started a sweets company and finding out how to sell sweets and things like that was tricky enough. Mm-hmm. You know, starting a magazine, right? You know, a, a, every single page... Is a new product that you're selling pretty much every single page and how many pages you have in a magazine? Well, we got your one right next to us, and you've got this one, you know, over 150 pages. We sell a product, right? We sell a suite to supermarkets, things like that, and make it as pretty and as amazing as possible. You have to make over 155 pages look as pretty and as amazing and as beautiful as possible. Yeah. And I think that is a, I would find a lot of pressure, especially at 22 years old, to achieve. And so, how do you achieve that?
1: Um, I suppose I was just trying to do the best that I could do. And, uh, I was reading, I think the first thing I did was also look at all my competitors and look at, read all the magazines, looked at all of their websites and like, tore apart what I liked, what I didn't like. And then I had this pile of things that I liked. And then, um, off the back of that started to just commission friends that I knew could write or take photos. NYU is quite an artistic school. So there wasn't a shortage there. And um, I also put up uh, on my Facebook, my cover photo, I put suitcase, suitcase magazine. I got 50 of my friends to do the same before the launch. And that created this kind of ripple effect, like, oh, what suitcase? And that got the word out there. So we ended up getting quite a lot of it. What I thought at the time was really good contributions. Now I look back at it, I'm like, oh, my God, I can't (laughs) can't even (laughs) look at this. But... But it has oh, yeah. to
3: start somewhere, right? Yeah. And what? And how would you describe Suitcase now in your in your words? What is Suitcase?
1: Um. So we're definitely we're a travel media company for an experience driv- experience driven. Let me say this again. We're a travel media company for an experience driven generation of travelers. And so I don't want to limit us to one platform. Like we have a website. We've got our print magazine. Who knows in five years time like maybe audio will become even bigger. We'll have a whole series of podcasts. So I think just reaching people at the right point in their journey um, and with relevant content.
3: And that experience part is just so important these days, isn't it? I was actually having a chat with my um, fiance's dad on the weekend who's a music producer and was talking about how album sales now have completely flipped just to the tours and and kind of live gigs, which Mm. is kind of almost going back in time. But everybody's looking for that experience. And I know at Candy Kittens for us it's all about the pop-ups and events that we do, that that's kind of really what gives the brand
2: life. Yeah. And I also think even more in terms of experience, I found when uh, we started our business and, and I want to find it with you is that you're 22 years old and, uh, and you're a woman, you know, mm-hmm. which I think, you know, we spoke about this before in other podcasts that, you know, something like 2% of, of women actually get funding for their businesses, which yeah. is just unbelievable. Like, what, what is that statistic? Um, so how <laughs> did you find, uh, firstly, being so young and being accepted as someone that actually was making something good? And how did you go about funding?
1: Um, so in the beginning, I... Honestly, I t- took a loan out from my father, which I just repaid recently with my fundraising round, which I'm very proud of. Yeah, yeah. Congratulations. Um, but
2: Can we ask how much that was? Or was that um, too I'm do- trying not
1: to say on the, on the podcast. Yeah, fair
2: enough. <laughs> That's our first to, rejection so yeah. far.
1: <laughs> <laughs> um, but I think there's no shame if there's someone near to you like friend or family that is willing to give you a cheap loan to start your business, that's maybe an even better option than looking at getting official funding because I found being young, it was hard enough to have my idea taken seriously. I think maybe nowadays there are more young entrepreneurs. So maybe you'd get taken more Mm -hmm. seriously, but I found being young a bigger barrier than being a woman. Um, And I actually find, but I find that the, the challenge is similar that I found that people at the time didn't think, couldn't take what I was doing that seriously because they they thought I was at university and I, how could I know anything about media because I'd never worked in media before. I'd never worked in travel before. So yeah, that's a nice little, that's a nice little project.
2: So you were finding it tricky to, to be accepted and for people to take you seriously because it kind of was like a hobby and things like that. And... You had this loan from your father, and you were doing. This. When did you start to, and how did you know how to start getting revenue and actually start making money from the magazine?
1: So that was always a goal. It was. It was never. If it. If I hadn't had that in mind, then it would have just been literally a project, which um, it never was. So I knew that I was going to get money from my magazine sales, and I also. That's also why I did a pop up so soon after launching, because I'm sure you know that. Pop-ups. If you do them right, are amazing marketing tools. You can talk to people as well. Like I can see what my readers like about the magazine and they don't like, and and um, it's a great engagement tool. But then it's also just good because we were selling the magazine. We we're also selling things from all around the world that we featured in the magazine. Um, so it was a nice showcase. But then we also just made money from that. And in the first four years, we probably did about six pop-ups, um, because then. During that time, um, we then grew our magazine circulation. Were they all in London? or Yeah, all in London. Yeah. Um, and we did a few parties in, in the States as well, doing Art like, Basel, Miami. So where, wherever our audience might be. Um, but during And the that magazine time, is then, on um, sale
3: around the world, are,
1: yeah, right? Exactly. Yeah, mm-hmm. But we wanted to let our magazine circulation grow. And then the advertising came a lot more easily rather than saying, hey, we've got 5,000 issues. <laughs> and
3: how, who was the first advertiser?
1: Our first advertiser was... Um, I think it was Estee Lauder, actually. Okay. Yeah,
2: because you've worked with some pretty epic brands
3: now.
1: Yeah, yeah, Rolex. Yeah. yeah. I mean.
2: But I think, did you ever find this? Because I suppose uh, you find this in lots of different places that um, you're you're creating a magazine that people love to read and mm-hmm. they they love it and they experience it and all those kind of things. And as soon as you start putting ads in it, <clears throat> do your readers suddenly go? Hang on, you're making money off the back of us? Or do they not notice that or care? Well, I
0: think
1: that our readers need to, I think our readers know that we need to make money somehow. And if we're making money via advertising, then it's, we're kind of being less abusive towards our readers in some ways because we're not asking them for more. And I, we only work with brands that our readers would probably like or wear or choose to buy. So then it's not as an intrusive. Experience. We do a lot of uh, native content, which means um, advertising that looks more like written content. And we did this amazing partnership, for example, with American Express, where we did a series of road trips. And that was some of our most popular content on our website, naturally, because like a road trip everyone wants to do a road trip yeah
2: yeah, of course yeah. (laughs) but what also is there is the fact that I've seen you sort of say from the beginning that you wanted to keep very much the business yourself and you didn't want anyone really else to have it wasn't that right that you wanted to not give away too much equity and things like that yeah well
1: then then I changed my mind (laughs) (laughs) Uh, we actually did our first investment round last year
2: yeah but but Mm -hmm. this is what's so amazing you are okay you're like us you're seven years in isn't it so after seven years or six seven years Mm -hmm. you suddenly then go for investment and normally what happens in these situations, you know, like Ed and I and other people, you build a little bit and then you go for investment straight away. And it's kind of, you know, a process as you go along. Uh, you know, I also was very naive to, towards equity. And at the beginning of what a lot of people, what a lot of of, uh, people building a business don't realize is that equity is cheap. So you can give it away at the beginning, but you can never get it back. And I think that's probably one of the biggest mistakes that I had to learn is that once you give away equity, you can't get it back. Who was your mentor and who taught you that? Or did you just know that yourself?
1: Um, It was more of a feeling. I think I was actually a little bit too selfish with my company. I didn't think of investors as being a potential asset. So if you have the right investors and they can actually help you grow your business. So say I'd found someone who was a media mogul and someone who was, you know, I don't know, CEO of a big travel company, then they could have opened so many doors for me early on. But I was really concerned with the brand image and like the products and someone coming in and changing everything. But realistically, if an investor has a small amount, they can't do that.
3: Yeah, of course. And then Um, it's about what else they can bring to the party other than money.
1: When I actually raised money, I did do it from angel investors so individuals rather than a VC so a a company or a group of people because um, I actually then could hand pick who I had um, invested in the company and that meant that I chose people that could help me. I think Um, that's super important it's kind of similar
3: to what Jamie and I have done at Candy Kittens and what were you looking for then when you kind of picked those people was it about like you say, bringing people in that brought relevant experience?
1: Yeah, so I think the first thing was that they needed to be really passionate about the business. So we actually also brought in um, two female investors, which was really important to me because our product is read by almost about 60% females. Um, and also just there's so few female investors out there and female founders yeah. it's just a nice thing to have. Um, and then I was looking for a mixture of people that are passionate and then also some expertise Um, So one of our investors is also the uh, chairman of LVMH Asia, so big expertise in luxury products and...
2: Yeah, but how did you how did you find these people? Because that's what the tricky thing is and it's very yeah. sort of I suppose when you 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 have a brand and you have a business and it's doing well and those kind of things and so it's 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 easier I suppose to get people on board, but you are what I think you're saying is that you were able to kind of pick and choose yeah. in a weird kind of way. So how did you find those contacts and how did you get them?
1: So um I only knew one of them before. I got Two of two of my investors from sending a, an email out to my uh, database. My you and your lesson. emails, just sending I them
2: out. <laughs> <like old emails. laughs> yeah, that email queen. Listen, I, I got some more photos on you, you. <laughs> so give it back.
1: Um, I sent an email out to my database, like a very inspirational one, telling all of our readers what we're planning to do with Suitcase um, in the future, and um, saying that we're essentially fundraising, and if anyone was interested, to let me know. And it was amazing, actually, how many people came out of the woodwork. I think we had about uh, over 100 answers. Wow. And not everyone could have. I, I had a minimum investment size so that I wouldn't have too many investors. I wanted to have f- fewer investors. But there were a lot of people that just wanted to give, you know, a few hundred pounds. So if we ever did a crowdfunding thing, it's it's a really amazing source of finding um, potential investors. For sure.
2: But then what's tricky is, is that you were saying at the beginning that... Um, You had this idea at 22 years old while setting up, which I still found fascinating, your magazine in your bedroom, pretty much, that you didn't want to give anything away. And you're now seven years later and you've had some ups and downs, as Mm -hmm. I'm sure, you know, like everyone has had. Um, But you have done two things and you can correct me if I'm wrong, but first you've given away equity, mm-hmm. which you didn't do, which is letting your business go into other people's hands slightly. Yeah. But also you've changed from being editor in chief to just CEO. Yeah. And that is giving away even more control to to someone, not even more control, but giving someone else the ability to step in your shoes and, and have a vision that perhaps isn't yours. How do you get past that as someone who is a founder of a business?
1: Well, I think um, when I first started, I obviously needed to do everything because I just had a team of about two people. (laughs) uh, And then as we grew, I, I was able to bring in people that had expertise in different areas and could really help the magazine grow. And I think when, when you have someone who's just so talented in your team and they're doing such a good job at something, you just know, I mean, I felt like I just knew at one point that they could do my job in that area better than me. And it was at that point that I decided to promote them um and so i first promoted someone to an editor-in-chief and then i became ceo i think that was three years ago and since then i've also you know brought it uh, promote someone to coo so i've been i think i haven't given up control in some ways um or taking a step back and not chilling <laughs> definitely not chilling
2: but you've given you've but given I've, confidence to someone yeah, else yeah it's
1: more giving a platform for someone in my team to go and just run and do that run that area of the business as well as they can so like I, don't, I know I'm not very good at numbers operations so my COO is really good at that so then it's great for her to be able to to have that and then I can focus on more what I'm good at
3: and how have you found that that process of building the team that you needed?
1: I mean, it was definitely difficult. I think I made a mistake a, a few. T- I made a few quite a few mistakes. <laughs> so but, I made a, I, And go on these yeah. idea of
2: mistakes so I think it's key to understand what yeah, mistakes I think, we've so made. So I,
1: I made a mistake of just hiring someone who was just like a really fun guy at one point who had no skill set, and he was also just a bit...
2: <laughs> what he did monkey bars. Yeah, like, what think, he, he, just... he
1: didn't have any. Like, he didn't have any experience in media, which is fine. But then. I, i hired him in a position where he was going out and representing the magazine and then it was just really difficult because um yeah he just wouldn't really listen to me so, <laughs> so <laughs> uh,
3: rule one find yeah, rule, somebody that and wants then, to
1: listen and then i also overhired i hired someone who had more a lot more experience than me but then that meant that it was very difficult for me to manage them and then it was just a bit of a mess and she was a really bad culture fit with the team and the team, When the team is so small, you need to really hire, you need to hire someone that is, it is hard to find, you need to hire someone, I think personality first and then skill set second.
2: Um, so, yeah. so really what I'm kind of discovering here is that what you're saying is that the biggest skill set you had to learn uh, running the business is actually uh, hiring and managing people.
1: Yeah, that's And that's the biggest thing.
2: Biggest. So that you had this idea to set up the magazine and have all of those kind of things. But in fact, you then find people who are potentially better at doing things than you, yeah. but also realizing what people not to hire as well. And Ed actually speaks about this a lot. And Ed is, you know, our managing director of Candy Kittens. And that's what he had to realize. And in fact, you spend most of your days actually just managing people rather than
1: yeah.
2: growing the business. Other people grow the business. You yeah. just manage them. Yeah, I think there's a big transition when you
3: first kind of start out from being that kind of, as you say, doing everything and anything that Mm -hmm. you just have to do because you haven't got choice (laughs) to then delegating and and actually becoming a manager rather than almost rather than a founder. But it's yeah, it's an interesting place to be. And I I guess I always say that we didn't ever want to be managers. That's not why we started the business, but it's just part and parcel of something you've got to learn to do a good job.
1: I think last year when I was fundraising, it was really a huge low point for me because Up until then, even though it was obviously really stressful for whatever reason, whether it's cash flow or, you know, we didn't have enough users or whatever the reason was, um, there was always, I always had the opportunity to be creative and to travel. Whereas last year, my job was so siloed into going out and meeting people and raising money and looking at numbers all the time, looking at performance metrics. And it was so dry. I got so depressed. And yeah. I, just, I decided yeah. something needed to change. <laughs> you kind of
2: lose sight of what you actually were
3: doing. Yeah, exactly. Yeah,
1: yeah. And I think that
2: then then you sort of sit back for a second sometimes and you go, well, what am I actually doing here? Because, you know, you started something which was fun and exciting and mm-hmm. everyone had their side hustle, as yeah. you said, when you were in New York. And this was your side hustle and then it becomes something else. And then what, then what it becomes is something that actually... Uh, damages your own emotions and so you sort of sit back and go hang on a second where is all the passion and the love and the beauty gone into mm-hmm. building this thing and then you have to rethink and find that back again
3: jamie bad news that is the end of part one what i know i know we got there so quick but don't fear part two is coming right up just one click away so everybody that's listening just go over and click part two
2: thank you so much for listening honestly it really does mean a huge amount and we also hope today's podcast has inspired you to move towards your dream or passion now if you like the podcast please subscribe and leave us a comment and if you'd like to get in touch please email us at move at moveclub.co.uk or follow us on instagram at moveclub until next time this is move